We're going to continue where we left off last week in Matthew's Gospel this morning as we consider Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through to verse 23. Let's all stand to hear God's word. Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 through to verse 23. Now when they had gone, that is the Magi, behold an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and he said get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfil what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted, for they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, and he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. God bless his word as we consider that this morning. Please be seated. Before we consider those words, let's come to God in prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we can gather in your name. We do think of those who are unable due to various illnesses. We pray that you'll be with them, that you'll strengthen them and comfort them, particularly at this time of the year, and that they will be back with us soon. We thank you, Lord, for your word in our lives, a word that cuts all the way through to soul and spirit, where joints and marrow come together, that judges the very intentions and thoughts of our hearts. And again, as always, we pray that you will open it to our hearts. We don't take it for granted. We know that we need your word in our lives. And we know that to have your word in our lives, we need your Holy Spirit to lead, to guide, to instruct, and to transform us by the power that is contained in your word. We pray that that will happen this morning, and all for your glory. And I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory again today. Amen. Now, as i said many times in the past, I make no apologies for saying again, Every single word of the Bible is critically important to us because it's all spoken to us by God Almighty himself. Just think about that. We have a word from God, from God Almighty. Therefore, it's obvious that we better believe it and we better obey it, all of it. The Bible claims for itself that it is nothing less than the word of God. Which is absolutely amazing when you think about it. 
It's therefore to be believed and to be separated from every other writing. You can't add to it, as I've said before, and as it says on the very last page, Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, warns very, very clearly, you cannot add to God's word, you cannot take away from God's word, all of it. Or, you face the wrath of God himself. So we therefore have the choice, only the choice, of totally accepting or totally rejecting his word. That's the only choice that people have in this world. And that's true of the Christmas message as well, obviously. You can't take bits out. You can't ignore bits. The bits that perhaps you don't agree with, or that the world doesn't agree with, because all of God's word is God's word. Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfil. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot not one tittle shall pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. Jesus is saying there, until there is no more planet, until there is no more earth, until there is the end, and we're all in heaven with God, those who have accepted him as Lord and Saviour, until that time, you can't even take the dot off the eye, let alone that letter, let alone that word, let alone that passage. The Bible, you see, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit as a complete the final revelation from God. There's nothing missing, there's nothing in it that is not of God. Not one single word, not even the dot on the eye, says Jesus. No errors, it's all true, it's all relevant. Which is obvious when you think about it. If it's written by God, of course it's all true. God wrote it, it has to be true. If there was error, then when God says in Second Peter 1 verse 20 that he spoke through men, then he's lying. And if that's true, then there is no God. Because God doesn't lie. And God didn't write the Bible. That's why he's so clear about this. That's why we need to accept all of it. Of course, um, as I've said before, despite the clear warnings and odd, so the, the logical inconsistency, yeah, there are people who try to do a little of both, adding or, or taking away from the Bible. I say logical inconsistency because it is totally illogical to say, well, I accept this bit but not that bit. Well then, which bit is true? Uh, if that bit's not true, what about the bit about Jesus coming to be born as a baby? What about the bit about Jesus coming to, to die? What about the bit about him rising from the dead? If you say that particular verse isn't true, then what about those verses as well? It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, I would recommend that you either believe God up to the hilt, or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. Because there's no logical standing place between the two. And what Spurgeon is doing there, he's saying it's absolutely illogical to do what people do. To try to accept bits of the Bible, but not all of it. And that's why God, on the very last page, says, don't do it. Of course, the various cults do it all the time. The religious groups, the Mormons, for example, have added to the Bible there. Original leader Joseph Smith said an angel gave um, him a new word from God, a new Bible, which is different to our Bible. Christian Science done the same. They had more revelation received by a woman called Mary Baker Eddy. Seventh-day Adventists do the same. They received extra from Ellen G. White. Jehovah's Witnesses, exactly the same. They've received extra from Charles Russell and Judge Rutherford. It's a consistent of all the cults and false religions to do exactly what God warns us not to do on the very last page of the Bible. 
And over the years, even Roman Catholicism has added reams and reams of man-made traditions that have more authority than the Bible itself. They contradict clear teaching in the Bible because they relegate the Bible to a secondary authority. And even the Anglican Church is constantly moving away from the truth of God's word to accommodate various sins. And sadly, the Baptists are not far behind. But as I say, the word of God, it's final, it's complete, you can't add to it. How, though, do we know that the Bible is trustworthy? That's what I want to think about this morning. How do we know that it is all that we need without anything added to and without anything taken away? How do we know that? How do we know that the latest rulings from the Anglican Church which contradict the Bible are not true? How do we know that the Roman Catholic teaching on Mary and transubstantiation and the popes are not true? How do we know that the cults are not right when they come out with all these new revelations from God? How do we know that God is the author of the Bible that we have in our hands today? How do we know that all the Bible is trustworthy? Well this morning, Matthew gives us evidence of that. The point of this passage this morning shows us fulfilled prophecy. If you notice, Matthew deliberately says it again and again, three times specifically, this happened to fulfill scripture. And that's a very specific and very deliberate thing that Matthew's doing. God is doing it through Matthew. Because one of the many evidences for the truth of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. Things that God wrote hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually happened, that happened exactly as God said that they would happen. Throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you find many prophecies, many detailed things that gives us such amazing detail that foretell future events. And one of the evidences that you really can trust the Bible, that it is God's word, is the fulfilment to the very letter, the very detail of every single one. Not just some, not just most, not just 99.9%, but every single one, 100% of every single prophecy that was written in the Old Testament came true just as it was written. And that's particularly the case when it comes to the life of Jesus Christ. There are many, it's amazing how many detailed prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the details of the Messiah. Remember the Jewish people were waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come when Jesus was born. And Jesus' followers and he himself said he is the Messiah. He is the fulfilment. He's the one that you've been waiting for for all these centuries. And when we consider the many prophecies, it becomes very clear that the claims of Jesus and his followers were true. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Just the prophecies of his birth are amazingly clear. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah said, The virgin-born son name is God with us. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Micah 5 verse 2 says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was. Genesis 12 verse 2 to 3 says he would be descended of Abraham. And he was. Numbers 24 verse 17 says he would be a descendant of Jacob. And he was. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 says he would be a descendant of David. And he was. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he did. Psalm 41 verse 9 says he would be betrayed by a close friend. 
And he was. For 30 pieces of silver, said Zechariah 11 verse 12, and that's exactly what happened, just as the Messiah would be. And when we look at these prophecies about the Messiah in general, the, the details are amazing. Psalm 35 verse 11 says that he would be accused by false witnesses. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says he would be silent when struck. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says that he would be spat at and struck. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says he would be crucified with criminals. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says he would be pierced through his hands and feet. Psalm 22 verse 7 says he would be sneered and mocked. Psalm 69 verse 21 says he would be given vinegar and gall to drink. Psalm 22 verse 17 says that the soldiers would gamble for his clothes. Psalm 34 verse 20 says no bones would be broken. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says that his side would be pierced. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Psalm 16 verse 10 says he would be resurrected. You get the point here, you can see what's happening and there are many, many, many more. These are just some of the myriad of Old Testament prophecies that say would happen and they happened just as they said. Every single one of them points directly to Jesus Christ. Now such fulfilled prophecy is an important part of Matthew's Gospel here. At the beginning of Gospel he, he points to four Old Testament prophecies. He just picks out four. He could have picked out many, many more. But he picks four that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ just at his birth. So we're not talking about his adulthood, we're not talking about anything else, just the birth. The first thing that Matthew says is that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And we've considered that already on a number of occasions. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at the other three. The three lesser known ones. Less often quoted prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The first is the escape to Egypt. The second is the slaughter at Ramah. And the third is the return to Nazareth. And remember the Old Testament were written over about a 1,000 year period containing several hundred references to the coming Messiah and every single one fulfilled in Jesus. So Matthew he just picks these three that shows that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore that we can trust the Bible. Not the words of Jesus, don't ever think that I came to set aside Moses' teaching or the prophets, I didn't come to set aside them, I came to fulfil them. And Jesus himself there is saying, I fulfil every single prophecy. So we're going to look at those. The first of all we see here in verses 13 to 15, the escape to Egypt. Now the coming of the Magi, when you think about it, it must have been a, a huge encouragement to Joseph and Mary. Yes, they'd received a message from God through an angel that was amazing. But they must have been in a bit of a daze. Because to be told that your child is going to be the Messiah would have been extremely hard to accept and understand whoever tells you. So it would have been a great comfort when these magi confirmed the amazing truth that the angel had proclaimed to Mary and Joseph, as we see in Matthew 1, verse 20-23, and also to Zacharias, if you remember, and to the shepherds in Luke 2, verse 8-14. to also confirming the testimonies of Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna, all had spoken about Mary's child. So Mary and Joseph must have been extremely pleased that these magi confirmed the angel's message. Even magi from a far off land had been told the amazing news by God and they came to worship Jesus. However, 
the rejoicing was short-lived because no sooner had these magi departed than an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph with some dangerous, urgent news. They had to flee to Egypt, that to remain there until told to move because Herod wanted to destroy Jesus. So as we've just read, uh, Joseph and Mary along with the newborn Jesus had quite a a journey ahead of them. Uh, The distance from Bethlehem just to the border of Egypt is 75 miles. And then there's at least another hundred or so miles that they would have had to travel inland to get to within a safe place within Egypt. 175 mile journey with a baby. And remember, no cars, no buses. They had to walk. They had a donkey. She could have sat on the donkey, Mary, but it was a long and arduous journey. Now Egypt was a natural place to hide because Alexander the Great had actually established a sanctuary for Jewish people in Alexandria, the city that he named after himself. So it was a natural place to go. In Jesus' time it was still considered a place of safety. And as I mentioned last time, it seems reasonable to assume that this flight to Egypt was funded by the three valuable gifts given to the family. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. Remember, Mary and Joseph were poor. It's not easy just to get up, leave where you you live and just to go and live somewhere else. In, in, In this situation, they must have used those three gifts. So Joseph took Mary and Jesus, he left by night, probably didn't tell anybody, and they head for Egypt. We don't know anything about the stay in Egypt. It's probably that it lasted months and months rather than years. We don't know. But we do know, as Matthew knew, that this trip had been prophesied several centuries earlier. And just as nobody had any way of knowing that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, apart from the fact that God tells us in his word, nobody had any way of knowing that he would also live for a short time in Egypt. How would they know that unless God told them? So this flight to Egypt was another piece of divine evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. The prophecy we find in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. 700 years before Jesus was born, we get this prophecy saying that the Messiah would live for a time in Egypt. If you know the book of Hosea, it's uh, uh, really a book of a failure and spiritual tragedy. Uh, through the unfaithfulness of his own wife, Hosea portrays the unfaithfulness of Egypt. But despite everything that the people of Israel did, God promised to bring Israel back to himself. And Matthew tells us that just as Israel went into Egypt, so did God's son, and in the same way returned from Egypt. It's very symbolic as well. Another prophecy fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, but there's more to come. Because then in verse 16 to 18 we get the second prophecy. The fact that Herod brutally killed the babies in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. After Joseph had taken Mary and Jesus to the place and safety of Egypt, Herod was very angry. And he committed one of the bloodiest acts of his life, certainly the cruelest. He felt tricked by the Magi who didn't come back to him as he'd asked them to. The Magi knew his real motives because God had warned them. So they don't go back. They don't tell him anything. And as a result, he completely lost his temper. The Greek word here in the Gospel tells us that Herod was now completely controlled, completely controlled by passion, by anger. You know, when you think about it, it's one thing when the average person in the street loses control. It can cause all sorts of trouble and damage. But when you've got somebody with such power, such authority as Herod, and they lose control, 
Well, the results are truly frightening. Particularly 2,000 years ago, when you could do anything you wanted. If you had the power that Herod had, you could kill all the babies in the surrounding areas if you wanted to. Nobody could do anything to stop you. Absolutely horrific. And worse still, Herod's rage was turned against the most helpless in all society. It was vented against the desperate and heartless slaughter of all the male children in Bethlehem. All the children under two. Just killed. Vile, heinous crime. Made worse by the fact that he was actually trying to kill the Messiah, God's only son. Herod arrogantly and foolishly set himself against very, uh, God's uh, very anointed from the earliest part of the message, Matthew tells us the, the rejection of the Messiah by the very people for whom he came. And the slaughter in Bethlehem was just the beginning, really, of the tragedy, the bloodshed that would result in Israel's rejection of their saviour and their king. These innocent children of Bethlehem were the first casualties in the war between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God. As always, though, it was a war that the enemies of God can never win. You cannot reject God without facing serious consequences. Within two generations from this time, in AD 70, Jerusalem would see its temple literally raised to the ground. Over a million people destroyed by the troops of Titus. Absolute, tremendous bloodshed. Of course, the very least of Herod's intentions would be that he'd be fulfilling prophecy. But that's what this slaughter did. Because, you see, God knew that Herod would do this. And 600 years before he did it, he told the prophet Jeremiah to write it down. In Jeremiah, verse 31 to 15, as Matthew quotes here, this is what the Lord says, The sound is heard in Ramah, the sound of crying and bitter grief. Rachel is crying for her children, Rachel is Israel. She refuses to be comforted because they are dead. And then... Although Matthew doesn't mention it because he's emphasising the tragedy. The, the quote does continue with a bit of hope. Because verse 16 says, This is what the Lord says, Stop your crying, wipe away your tears, you will be rewarded for your work, declares the Lord, for you will return from the land of the enemy. There's hope, in other words, on the horizon. Although Herod had killed the innocents, he hadn't managed to kill the Messiah. And also, every single one of those babies went to heaven. As you should know, if a baby is killed before it has the ability to make a decision for or against Christ, they go to heaven. So those babies weren't lost. We should mourn for them, obviously, because it was horrific. But everyone went to heaven, and they're all there now. But it was terrible. It was horrific. But there's still hope for the world. All was not lost because he didn't kill the Messiah. Jesus was in Egypt, and he would return. Satan's very first attempt to kill Jesus had failed. Which takes us to the next prophecy. We read on in verse 19 to 23, that Matthew brings our attention to the journey of Jesus' family back to Nazareth, and Nazareth specifically. In time Herod died, and the immediate danger was gone, although Jesus would face danger for the rest of his life. It's interesting that Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Herod died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied organs and constant convulsions, convulsions um, and neither physicians nor a warm bath led to any relief. Which I think, well that's a fitting end perhaps. But his son, Archelaus, then prepared an elaborate and costly funeral. As I told you last week, Herod had executed another of his sons, Antipater, just five days before he died himself. He was a bit paranoid about alleged plots 
against himself. It was said at the time that it was safer to be Herod's sow than it was to be his son. Because in the Jewish community, obviously, at the time, pigs had a, a greater chance of reaching old age than his sons had. But this was a really evil, really wicked man. But meanwhile, Joseph was told to go back to Israel. But he went back to Nazareth in the north rather than anywhere south, like Bethlehem, because of Herod's son Archelaus. He was still a threat to Jesus in the south. Now Archelaus was cruel like his father. At one Passover time he executed 3,000 Jews because of a, an insurrection. And most of them weren't actually involved in the insurrection. They were just innocent bystanders. So he's a dangerous man. But because Jesus returned to Nazareth, yet another prophecy was fulfilled. Because one of the things in the Old Testament that says about the Messiah is that he would be a Nazarene. He would be in Nazareth. Nazareth was about 55 miles north, it still is actually, not was about, but uh, 55 miles north of Jerusalem in the region of Galilee. A town inhabited at this time by people who were considered to be very crude, uh, very uh, violent in their ways. And the term Nazarene, um, not Nazarite, that's a different thing, but Nazarene had long been a term of derision. People looked down on people from Nazareth. People looked down on people from the north, but particularly Nazareth. People consider them to be a bit rough and ready. That's why we see in John chapter 1 verse 46, Nathaniel asked Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, the Messiah can't come out of Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. It's a horrible place. He was shocked that the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote could really come from such a, a disreputable place. In fact, the early Jewish persecutors of the church considered the fact that Jesus came from Nazareth was evidence that he wasn't the Messiah. But Matthew makes the correct point. It's the opposite, actually. The fact that he came from Nazareth, the fact that he grew up there, the fact that he lived there from the age when he got back from Egypt, was evidence that he was the Messiah, because living in Nazareth fulfilled the prophet's prediction. He would be a Nazarene. This fulfilled many of the prophecies which depict the Messiah as somebody who's despised and forsaken. We see in Isaiah 53 verse 3 because um, a title of reproach. Lowly, despised Nazareth. That's where he made his home for 30 years. So we see a number of things from this passage. Very true that Jesus was a man of sorrow, even from his infancy. Trouble awaited him every step of his life. Very true that the rulers of this world are seldom friendly to the cause of God. Jesus came to save, Herod seek to destroy. Very true that he lived in humility, born to poor, humble parents living in the north, living in Nazareth, a town that was derided, a town that people looked down upon. But very true that he was the fulfilment of so many prophecies. Prophecies written hundreds of years before his birth. Matthew doesn't have time to tell us them all. I've, I've listed quite a few and there are so many more. And what a contrast we see with Herod and Jesus. Herod, the one with the power, the one with the splendour, but a wicked, twisted man. And then Jesus, the true king, with no, well, nothing, apart from the clothes on his back. And yet wise and caring and loving, the perfect example of how we should live. Today we have a choice, like all people. Do we follow the Herods, the secular rulers of this world, or... Do we follow Jesus, the true ruler, the true king? At the moment, the, the secular leaders, the rulers have the, some power just like Herod had. But one day, 
the true king will return. The whole point of Christmas, yes, again as I've mentioned before, is about a birth of a baby, obviously, in a manger, in Bethlehem. But he came to die. He came to rise again. But even more importantly, in one sense, one day he will return. He also promised before he ascended back into heaven that he's coming back. So we can't ignore the prophecies. We can't ignore Matthew as he proclaims that Jesus is the king. He's not the king on earth at the moment, but he is the king. And one day he will come to take his throne. I've told you before of the story of the Tsars of Russia who uh, frequently visited cities of the towns and the kingdoms incognito, in, in disguise, to sort of find out what the people thought. And one such occasion, uh, one of the Tsars of Russia dressed as a, a peasant and he thought he'd find out what the people thought of him. <clears throat> and he went into the towns and cities in this disguise. He knocked at the door of an inn. And the innkeeper listened to his request for a room for the night. And he was just about to say, well, I'm sorry, but um, you know, many of the king's nobles are in this inn. We don't have room for a peasant. And one of the noblemen heard the king's voice and he recognised it. And he rushed to the door. And he said, please come in. The dress may be that of a peasant, but the voice is that of my lord and my king. Jesus may well seem to be a peasant in the eyes of the world, but his voice is the voice of our Lord and our King, the King of Kings. Somebody once wrote, The kingdoms of the earth go by in purple and in gold. They rise, they flourish, and they die, and all their tale is told. One kingdom only is divine, one banner triumphs still. Its king, a servant, and its throne, a cross upon a hill. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of Christmas, which was a, a fulfilment of prophecy in so many amazing details, as obviously was the rest of Jesus' life, including his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his one day to return, all prophesied. We thank you that we know the truth of Christmas. We thank you that we can celebrate it as it should be celebrated. We thank you that we know Jesus. Help us to proclaim that truth so that others may know him too. We thank you, Father. Amen.